going. Yes. Good morning. Trust you all are doing well. Um, wasn't going to do this, but look, me and Mark have a love-hate relationship. I love him because he's so gifted, and I hate him because he always preaches the sermon through music. So you've already received it through worship. Thank you, Mark and the band, for serving us so well, as you guys do. Um, do need to ask your forgiveness. If you have notes, I made those on Friday. And then praying over this sermon, I realized that the sermon would be about an hour. And so two things came to mind. One, clearly Lakeview has had its effect on me. <laughs> and two, that would not serve you. So the Lord has been kind to adjust it, so just bear with if you are following along in the notes. That being said, if you can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 42, Psalm chapter 42, we are going to get there momentarily. Before we do, I don't know about you, but I love to see a good movie. And... One of the things that I love about movies that make movies great are the songs that accompany them. These scores that are created, these songs that are in the movies, help to magnify the experience. They appeal to our senses, right? And so you can make or break a movie based upon what score is in there. So, granted, I'm aware that any of you would be excited when Maverick is doing drills in his F-14 Tomcat, but how much more exciting is it when you hear Kenny Loggins sing Highway to the Danger Zone, right? And I'm sure that, as you should, your heart begins to palpate when you see a great white in the, in the, in the water swimming towards people, but how much tachycardia happens when you hear that oh-so-familiar ba-dum, ba-dum? These songs impact the movie, and they help to tell the story. I came across an article entitled The Importance of Scoring in Films, and it reads, Every song has a story. Even instrumental music can tell its listeners a story. A slow, weeping song of two star-crossed lovers or a symbol-filled, exciting story of a great battle between two armies. It's virtually impossible to have a song that doesn't tell some kind of story or evoke some kind of emotion in its listeners. Maybe that's why we humans have a tendency to listen to music so often. That way, we always have a story other than our own to accompany us on our journey, give us strength through our difficult times. I don't know about you, but for me, the Psalms have been these songs that have accompanied me on my journey, and especially in difficult times. We sing songs for a lot of different reasons. They can be rejoicing. If you're a sports fan, my favorite club, Liverpool, won the Champions League in June, sixth time. You guys don't care. But I was very excited, and I rejoiced a lot, and a lot of songs were sung when they won. And we do these things when there are special events, birthdays and Christmas. But what happens when your song is sad? When the melody of your life is melancholy, the tone of your life is Flat. When your life doesn't seem like there's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow shining at the end of every day, it is sad. And this can be because of a lot of reasons. It can be because of financial burden, difficulty at home, with your spouse and with your children. Maybe you dread going to work every day. Maybe you've lost a loved one. 
a loved one that you have had the pleasure of loving for decades and they are no longer here. These compound our difficulty and they invoke in us songs to sing. Psalms help us do this. So the title of this message today is When Your Song is Sad. How to sing well when you don't know why. And I believe the Lord wants us to see three things in the Psalms. It'd be like a soundtrack, if you will. Three tracks. The psalmist's song, the psalmist's fight, and the psalmist's God. Now, briefly because of time, we would just go quickly through the first point in Psalm 88. It is not uncommon to know that the psalms are full of laments. It is normal to see. But Psalm 88 is distinct. There are normal glimpses of hope and notes of confidence in the psalms, but Psalm 88 is different. Although there are implicit statements of God's authority, there is no explicit confidence explained. It begins and ends sad. And in this psalmist's song here, it is one of lament. He is desperate, as he mentions in the first two verses. He cries out to God day and night, pleading for God to incline his ear to him. He claims that he has experienced significant suffering and it is grievous to him. He claims that his soul is full of troubles. He is a man who has no strength. Like those who you remember no more. He, he compares himself that he is no different than a dead man. Or those who are among the slain. To make matters worse, it seems as if all of his friends have abandoned him. They mock his pain. And the worst part of all, for the psalmist it seems, God is distant. He is silent in his suffering. There is a wonderful work by C.S. Lewis called The Grief Observed that he wrote following the passing of his wife. And he really puts this to pen, this feeling of experiencing the silence of God and when God is not there. He writes, Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or, it seem, or so it seems, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. What do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. He begins to make a picture of a house that was once occupied, but now there are no more lights in it. And he wonders if it was ever occupied in the beginning. These kinds of experiences we can have when we go through pain and suffering. When these difficulties hit us, it can feel like there is no hope. And worst of all, that God is silent in our suffering. We feel that he is distant in that. Look, your, your song can sound like this. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there now and you're going through difficulty or a trying season. But don't think that this is a wrong experience for you to have. This is normal for a believer. After all, the Psalms are full of lament. A Christian can feel downcast. 
Christian can feel isolated and alone. Michael Wilcock, in his commentary on this Psalm 88, writes, This darkness can happen to a believer. This psalmist says, it doesn't mean you're lost. This darkness can happen to someone who does not deserve it. After all, it happened to Jesus. It doesn't mean that you've strayed. This darkness can happen at any time as long as this world lasts, because only in the next world will such things be done away with. This darkness can happen without you knowing why, but there are answers, there is a purpose, and you will eventually know why. But look, we must see here in this sad psalm that there is an implicit grace of God that is conveyed here. God gives us permission to express these things to Him. That we can go to God in our deepest need and we can, we can say things, albeit accusatory as it seems here in Psalm 88. We can go to God and we can submit to our Father. But we're also called to do something with it. And now we move to track number two, the psalmist's song, or the psalmist's fight in chapter 42 of Psalm. So follow with me. This is what the Word of God says. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Deep calls the deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. At night, at night, song is with me. Prayer, the God of my life. Well, this psalm is not so distinct from Psalm 88 in that his suffering is real and it is massive for him. But it is distinct in what he does with that suffering. The psalmist here in 42 fights for hope in the midst of his difficulty. How does he do that? Well, he does it in at least five different ways. Number one, he goes to God. Verse 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. The crazy thing about this psalmist is he's, he's not pleading for relief of what's going on. He's pleading for God. He needs God. If, if God were to tell you when this situation, this difficulty would pass, you might be inclined to just suck it up and deal with it on your own. Listen, hey, don't worry about it. July 20th, it's going to end. You'll be fine. Okay, I can handle it. I can just wait for then. That's cool. I got tissues. And you can deal with it. But when you don't know, it causes us to go to him and ask for his help. 
he wouldn't have gone to God if there was no benefit for him. Even if it was to just get it off his chest, he went to God because for the psalmist, it was all he could do. And the only one that could help him was God. He went to God. Next, number two, he remembers or he recalls it to mind in verse four. He recounts as he's pouring out his soul times that he was with the congregation when he would lead them in procession, worshiping the Savior. And these times when God would meet them and God would reveal himself to them. And these were extremely impactful because they helped to inform him in his suffering. That helps us here. Because that happens here. Because in here, we are taught how to endure in suffering. We are being trained and equipped to endure when these things come. In this room, people are moved from darkness into light. We get to observe miracles happen, and we get to walk alongside one another as we grow in godliness. And these things can help us and remind us of God's grace in time of need, that we might recall them to mind when we're going through difficulty. That way you might be able to speak to yourself and remind yourself. Because number three, the psalmist preaches to himself. As we see in verse five, he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He's not just listening to himself, he's talking to himself. Or better yet, preaching to himself. This is like this epic rap battle that's going on in his mind, right? And, and you see here, like, you're not able to do that if you don't have these types of memories or if you don't have his word in you and you don't know his truths or his promises. So when the inner and outer turmoil comes in and it's spitting lyrics at you and it's increasing your demise, you can drop a beat and destroy him with the truth. That is how you're able to fight in the midst of this, by preaching to yourself. Because listen, the most influential person in your life is yourself. Because you're in a constant dialogue with yourself. You are constantly listening to yourself. You're constantly hearing from yourself. You are speaking to yourself all the time. What are you hearing? Look, we know that God is good and gracious. But in the midst of difficulty, are you aware of his promises? Psalmist here, psalmist here is aware of that, and he acknowledges God's sovereign love in verse 8. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is within me. He is aware that in the midst of this, God is still lavishing his love upon him, and his song is with him. He's aware of God's sovereignty. In verse 5 and 11, my salvation and my God, he is claiming that. In verse 7, he doesn't say the world's breakers or the world's waves or my friend's breakers or my friend's waves. No, he says all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He is acknowledging that God is sovereign in every circumstance in his life and that he is ordaining this stuff. He is sovereign over it, and he is sovereign in it, in his difficulty. This is a glorious thing 
to know. Why? Because we know His promises. That He works all things. Some things, but all things. For the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. The psalmist knows that the Lord can alleviate His pain with one word. With one Thanos snap of a finger, it could be gone. He knows this. But look, as John Piper says, the psalmist does not lose grip on the great truth of God. He holds tightly to them. And it serves him well in the midst of his suffering. So finally, he does something that is very countercultural. The psalmist in the midst of his suffering, without hearing any word of going to get better. Here's the rescue. The psalmist sings. In verse 8, the psalmist says, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. Late at night, this dude is singing to the Lord. He is pleading for his life, and in the midst of suffering, he sings to God. Look, even when we don't feel like it, Sing to him. Even when you walk in this room and you've had a rough week and you just don't want to be here, sing to him. Do not think that it is hypocritical to do so. Kevin DeYoung makes this statement. He says, It's not a sign of hypocrisy, but a sign of maturity. When you can come in here and you had a wrecked week or a difficult season, when you can say, I don't feel like it, but I will still praise you, for you are God, and you have me. What an amazing reality this is for the psalmist that he does this in the midst of difficulty. We must know this truth to inform us. John MacArthur writes eloquently, the elevation of your worship directly corresponds to the depth of your theology. The heart can only go as high in worship as it can go deep in theology. The importance of knowing God's truth cannot be exaggerated. So that when trials and sufferings come, oh, they will come, you can hold on to his promises. They will be to you as rain in a drought. We must know these deep truths. We must, we must know these deep doctrines of God's immutability. He doesn't change his impassibility, of his aseity. He's not affected by external circumstances. He doesn't change. He is constant. His promises are faithful and true. Listen, in a context like this, I believe the majority of you can say, especially older people here, can say, I know these truths. I know what God says. But do they serve you when you walk through difficulty? Do they serve you when you're doing life and something comes along that is devastating? We need to be aware of God's promises and his truths, but we must also be aware of the grace that is given in time when we go to him. That grace that is supplied to you, enough grace to get you through the day, every single day when you go to him, is a gift. A gift that we have in the Holy Spirit who leads us and guides us. Because what we know about God, what we think about God is going to be the most important thing about us. What do you know about God that's going to inform you in your suffering? Fact number three, the 
psalmist God. What do we know here from the psalmist God? Well, Psalm 22 helps us in that we see in these psalms that we've covered that the psalmist God hears. The psalmist God hears. In Psalm 22, verse 24, we read, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. God heard those cries. The fact that these psalms are even in the Psalter is the declaration that God remembers these prayers. He was not absent when these people cried. He heard them and he put them in the Bible for our instruction. Not only so we can learn how to sing well, but so that we can know that God remembers and he hears and he's inclined to our cry. Even when it seemed as if God had nothing to say to Haman in Psalm 88, he was there and he put it in the Bible. He hears. Our God knows. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on Psalms, writes, the very presence of these prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. God knows how men sound. They are desperate. How does he know? Enter the garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14. Enter the garden and you will see a scene that is different. Before God was doing miracles, he was healing the lame, he was causing the blind to see, but the garden is different. You walk into the garden and you see the Son of God in turmoil and distress. He says, my soul is sorrowful, even to death. And he falls down with the weight of what awaits him. And he cries out to God. This is his cry. Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. Remove this cup from me. That is no different from the psalmist. He goes to God and he pleads, Lord, would you rescue me from this situation, from this turmoil and suffering that I am going through? He is aware of it. He knows darkness and silence. Verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groanings? Look, that is a prelude to Matthew 27, when from the sixth hour to the ninth hour there was darkness that covered the earth, and he cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? He knows darkness. He knows the silence from heaven. Silence was deafening to him. He knows it. He has experienced it. He knows suffering. He knows suffering well. We suffer. God really suffers. Look at verse 14 through 18. Psalm 22. This is in Psalm 22. And listen to what it says about Jesus. It is a prelude. It is like a memoir on the cross of Calvary. Listen to what it says. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is 
melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a fragment from a broken pot, and my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Can you see the suffering of the Savior? He can count all of his bones in his body. He is aware of them, and he feels the pain. He knows the weight of bearing all of your sins and being crushed by the just wrath of God. He is aware of suffering. But the psalmist felt forsaken by God. Jesus was forsaken by God. He endured the ultimate abandonment and forsaking. He endured the darkness so that while we will go through difficult times, and they will be devastating to us, the darkness will not last forever. And we can have a hope that does not put us to shame. Because as it says at the end of Psalm 22, it is done. It is finished. He has done us. Look, he didn't abandon us in our suffering, and he won't abandon us in ours. He hears, and he knows, and he is sovereign. Look, the longest discourse in the Bible is God responding to a man in suffering, as he does to Job, a man who loses his children, all his livelihood, his own wife says, hey, why don't you just curse God and die? Friends come along, and they are about as useful as an NFL ref. They are of no help whatsoever. He's in agony. His own body is ailing with these sores. And he wants to know why. Why is this happening? Lord. He inquires of the Lord, and the Lord answers Job. He doesn't answer in the way that Job thinks he's going to answer. He answers by questioning Job. And he does so by taking Job on a safari. And he starts to point out different animals. Are you aware of this animal and this one? He goes, are you aware when the mountain goat gives birth? What? Am I aware of when the mountain goat gives birth? When she's ready? I don't know. What does this have to do with anything? But God is getting at the point that I am God. I am sovereign over all things. I created it. I uphold everything together by the word of my power. Not one thing gets out of place without me calling it out of place. So he, he reminds Job through this safari and reminding him about himself that he is God. And Job's comfort does not come in the revelation of the reason, but in the revelation of God. When he sees God as he is, he makes that comment, I have heard of you by the hearing of my ears, but now I see you. He sees God as he is, sovereign over all things. So it becomes not so much important at where you start out in your suffering, but where you end up in your suffering. Because we have a tendency to look for the reason of our suffering. We want to know why this is going on. We want to know why we're going through this. 
What did I do to deserve this? Clearly, I must have sinned, and that's why this is happening to me. We ask, why me? But the Bible looks to the result of our suffering. What does it produce in us? Are we being conformed more to Christ's likeness? Are we enjoying sweet fellowship with Jesus in our suffering? Lick and Duncan stated, Our suffering is not incidental in regards to future glory, and it is not accidental in the now of our Christian life. It is purposeful. It has a purpose. Romans 8, Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, and heirs with God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him, in order that we might also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed. It is producing in us a future glory that is unmatched compared to our suffering. Not only that, it is producing more. Romans 5. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because suffering produces patience and character and hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because the love of God has been poured out on us by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And so therefore, we can count it all joy, my brothers. when We face trials of various kinds. Why? Because we know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So therefore, indeed, we can count everything as loss, apart from the surpassing joy of knowing Jesus. For his sake, we have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that we might gain Christ. The Lord uses suffering to uniquely reveal himself to us and to draw us closer to him. There are saints here, I would imagine, that have gone through such devastating circumstances but have felt so near God that I, I long for them. I long for the nearness that comes when there is suffering present. God descends from heaven to us and meets us in our suffering. John Piper writes, God's reason for creating the universe was to display the greatness of the glory of his grace supremely in the suffering of his son. The question is for us, will we join him, Christ, in displaying the supreme glory of his grace through our suffering? Philippians 1, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Mark, you and the band can come on up, man. You mean granted to us? Like, this is a good thing? Suffering doesn't feel like a good thing. I'd actually, if I have a choice, I'd rather not the suffering. It's been granted to us. We suffer for his sake. Why? Look, this is another reason that you can, as this series you guys are going through says, make Christ visible. This is how you can make Christ visible, because when you face with difficulty and suffering, hope in God, you in turn display the worthiness of Jesus. You reflect the supreme glory of his grace to a lost and dying world. We don't do it to look super spiritual. It's not why we do it. We respond well, we, res we sing well in our suffering, 
so that we might reflect the worthiness of Jesus. So that we can honestly sing whether he gives or he takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Because it's true. And he's faithful. He doesn't diminish the suffering. The question is, is God enough? Is he enough? If in the midst of difficulty, like the psalmist experienced, all you have is him. Is he enough for you? Don't deny the pain or the struggle or the difficulty. These experiences are indeed real and they can be devastating. But his promises are true and his grace is accessible and it is sufficient for everything that you go through. Let us build our life, our faith, our trust, our hope, our dependence on Jesus so that when the waves come, oh, they will come, you will not be shaken. One day, maybe not until that day, you will see that it is all worth it. And you will be able to change that question in the midst of your circumstance from why me to why not me? David Pallison poses that question of why not me in his book, God's Grace in Your Suffering. He writes, Finally, you are prepared to pose, and to me, an almost unimaginable question. Why not me? Why not this? Why not now? If in some way your faith might serve as a three-watt night light in a dark world, why not me? If your suffering shows forth the Savior of the world, why not me? If you have the privilege of filling up the sufferings of Christ, if he sanctifies to you your deepest distress, if you fear no evil, if he bears you in his arms, if your weakness demonstrates the power of God to save us from all that is wrong, if your honest struggle shows other strugglers how to land on your feet, if your life becomes a source of hope for others, why not me? Of course you don't want to suffer. Maybe you've become willing, like he says in the garden, if this cup, or if this is possible, let this cup pass. But if not, Lord God, not my will, but as you will. Like him, your loud cries and tears will in fact be heard by the one who saves from death. Like him, you will learn obedience through what you suffer. Like him, you will sympathize uh, with the weaknesses of others. Like him, you will deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Like him, you will display faith to a faithless world, hope to a hopeless world, love to a loveless world, and life to a dying world. If all that God promises only comes true, then why not me? It is worth it. Look what it is producing in us. It is conforming us to his image. And it is getting ready for a day when we will see him. And for the now, you are a light to people around your city and in your home, around your family that you've been praying for for years. And then you can be able to sing a song like we're about to sing. Take of time, I won't read the lyrics to you, but as we sing this song, listen to the words of this song. Praising God, for He is sovereign in the midst of any circumstance. That we can trust Him and rejoice and sing well, 
even when our song is sad.